I'm Dr. Janelle Anderson, former college professor turned manager in a large corporation turned entrepreneur. And not just any entrepreneur. I've made it my life's work to make organizational life more effective and fulfilling. So welcome to Working Conversations, the podcast where we digest and translate research and ideas on workplace dynamics and serve up to you the most interesting and actionable strategies to make your workplace conversations and your relationships more effective, productive, and influential. If you're looking for proven tools for your workplace toolbox, you're in the right place. Now, let's get after it. Hello and welcome to another episode of the Working Conversations podcast, where we talk all things leadership, business communication, and the future of work. I'm your host, Dr. Janelle Anderson. So I saw a short video on social media recently that had me snorting coffee through my nose. It was that funny. It was a parody of four different generations' reaction to a workplace meeting invitation that had no other context, no agenda. It was just with one person and no agenda. The baby boomer's response was to look forward to a good old chat with the person and they grab a cup of coffee before heading out to the meeting. The Gen Xer thinks it's going to be someone just blowing hot air and completely wasting his time and he's not looking forward to the meeting. The millennial is really concerned that he's getting fired, and the Gen Zer pretty much doesn't care, but is very annoyed that the meeting is happening at the end of the workday. <laughs> all in all, it's a funny look at the generational stereotypes, and it does a great job of being satirical. I'll link it up in the show notes if you want to check it out. But it comes at a very timely moment. Recently, the Pew Research Center, a think tank that looks at issues and trends, all kinds of issues and trends, um, has for a generation themselves researched and reported on generational differences. Well, they recently announced that they were going to stop producing research on generational differences because it's no longer a meaningful construct or a meaningful way to categorize people. Well, they're not going to stop entirely, but they're going to only position data through a generational lens when that really adds value and highlights meaningful societal trends. Now, this is a really refreshing position. Generational differences are one of the most overused, overgeneralized, over-stereotyped stereotypes that we have. And this is what we're going to dive into in this episode of the podcast. Are generations relevant anymore? Because as we think about the future of work, we must be critical about the data sets that we're using to understand the present and to make predictions about the future. Now, one of the most salient things that the Pew Research Center offers up for their change in tune is the difference in the stages of life within a generation. And this definitely makes sense to me. For example, my three children, ages 24, 14, and 12, are all Generation Z based on the years they were born. Obviously, my 24-year-old and my 12-year-old are in very different stages of life. One is in the seventh grade and rides his bike everywhere. The other one drives a Tesla and is thinking about buying a house. (laughs) Very different stages of life indeed. Now, I know that we can all find outliers to these stages. You know, the 24-year-old who rides his bike everywhere and still lives with his parents, and the seventh grader who's already saving for a Tesla. But on the whole, I would say that my kids are in rather typical stages of life for their ages. And not surprisingly, the oldest and the youngest, 24 and 12, 
are near the opposite cusps of Gen Z. And if you look at the cusps of the millennial generation, you're likely to see fairly large differences in their life experience as well. A 28-year-old is going to be experiencing different life events than their 42-year-old counterpart at the other end of the generation. Now, in recent years, the generational stereotypes have been increasingly used to explain away everything from quiet quitting to living in the basement of your parents' house to your affinity for avocado toast. Notably, millennials have been labeled as slackers who aren't financially responsible. Now, as a Gen Xer, and you may have heard me say this right here on the podcast in the past, Pretty much the exact same thing was said about us Gen Xers in the early to mid-90s. While we weren't built as entitled like the millennials often are depicted, we were definitely billed as slackers. We were the original slackers, even more so than the millennials. Now, while I think generations are an easy target to blame a host of concerns on, it's nothing new. But as we might surmise, From the Pew Research Center pulling out of generational research, the stereotype of placing causality for everything from A to Z on generations has become overly used to the point of a stereotype in and of itself, and it is no longer meaningful. So what do we make of this? Should we stop using generations altogether? Well, I'm going to say no, we shouldn't stop altogether. But when we do use generations as a framework, when we do think and speak in generational terms, we should do so with care and with intentionality. The Pew Research Center has not discounted any of its past research. It says that research is all still valid. It's just not going to be doing much more of it in the future. So if we want to think and speak in generational terms with intention and with care, Here are a few things to keep in mind. First, keep in mind the span of each generation. And each generation is spanning somewhere around 15 to 18 years. So the start and end years of each generation, and again, keep in mind that the life experiences are vastly different at the cusps for the younger generation, the younger part of the generation than they are for the older part of the generation. And of course, there may be variation in the middle as well, not just at the cusps. The older you get, the greater difference you might have, even from someone your own age, based on the life choices that you've each made along the way. For example, I've got a 12-year-old and some friends that I've graduated high school with, same age as me, they now have grandchildren who are 12. Different life choices along the way have led us to where we are. So yeah, even though we may be the exact same biological age and part of the exact same generation, we're in very, very different stages of life. And I might admit that I have a little bit of envy for the stage they're at, but I wouldn't trade my choices for anything. Now, Second thing to think about is that some of the generation research is shoddy and incomplete. It's easy enough to fire off a survey, get a couple of thousand responses from across the generations, and draw conclusions that may or may not be reflective of an entire generation. I see this all together too often. Even at an institution as prestigious as the Pew Research Center, even they are calling this out. 
And to be fair, as I mentioned, they're not discounting their previous research. They're stating that it's largely come to an end of being a meaningful discussion for going forward. Now, you don't have to be the research geek that I am, but when you hear generational statistics and trends, please, please, please take at least a cursory look at how the authors did the research and decide for yourself if you think it was a valid sample size and that if you think it was a sample size that's generalizable to a larger group of people. Third, generational research often pigeonholes people into categories that they don't necessarily identify with and that aren't meaningful for them. The stereotypes are not necessarily true. Millennials are supposed to be the ones who are saddled with student debt, but I was just speaking to a colleague near my age, in her early 50s, who is still paying off student loans from her master's degree. So it's not just millennials in student debt. This episode is made possible by Instacart. If you haven't already started using Instacart, now is the time, my friend. Now, I'm the first one to say that I actually enjoy a trip to the grocery store. I really do. But you know what I like doing even better? Making this podcast. When I was deep in the development of this podcast, outlining and recording the first few episodes, my kids reminded me that they needed to eat. Instacart to the rescue. In absolutely record time, Magnolia, my Instacart shopper that day, delivered chicken nuggets, milk, avocados, fresh berries, and a host of other groceries we needed. When life gets busy, or when you just want to feel like royalty and have someone do it for you, there's Instacart. Get $10 off your first order when you sign up at workingconversations.com forward slash Instacart. Now, back to the show. Now, the same goes for lots and lots of other stereotypes about the generations. They're not all necessarily true, and they're not all necessarily useful, and they don't all necessarily add to the conversation. However, there are times to still use the generations as a useful lens through which to see the world. So let's dig into the value that the generational conversation does bring. First, It is a useful framework for understanding common assumptions, similarities, and differences based on context. The major world events that shape our cultural, economic, and political realities vary greatly across the generations. This leaves each generation with different assumptions about the world, and those assumptions very well may shape decisions that we make, and they may shape our specific behaviors. So it may make sense to manage employees of different generations differently or to market to different generations differently. So let's look at context for a minute and see how contexts for each generation are different, sometimes vastly different, and how those contexts can influence worldview. For example, my Gen Z children, who did not live through the Cold War like I did, never did a duck and cover drill at school where they got under their desks and covered their heads to protect themselves from the fallout of a nuclear attack. (laughs) As an aside, I mean, really, as if that would do any good whatsoever. But I digress. That was my context. That is not the context for Generation Z. My kids have never had to do that, nor have they ever had that explained to them except by me. 
They never saw a Bert the Turtle duck and cover video explaining and demonstrating duck and cover. Now, on the flip side, as a Gen Xer myself, when I was a school-age kid, there was never an active shooter drill at my school that wasn't even conceivable in the 1970s and 1980s when I was in school. And today it's commonplace for school kids to know just exactly what to do in a lockdown situation at their school, whether that's helpful or harmful is a matter of debate that I won't go into here. But suffice it to say that both the active shooter drills and the duck and cover nuclear bomb drills can give a kid anxiety and have them fear for their safety. But the context is different. The fear is different. And the way safety is obtained, if it can be obtained at all, is very different. For the nuclear fallout predicted in the Cold War, it was a vague, general kind of fear. If the United States were to be the target of a nuclear attack, we wouldn't exactly know the full impact of what the nuclear fallout would be like in terms of specifics. Would we be incinerated on impact? If so, for how many miles of a radius from the actual impact? Would the government's attempt to shoot down a nuclear missile that was bound for the United States be successful? Would a fallout shelter really protect us if we were lucky enough to have access to one? And if so, for how long? (laughs) And would it really help to get under your desk and cover your head? (laughs) I don't think so. (laughs) Now that's very different from what I would imagine the active shooter drills would feel like. Sure, there's some similarity in terms of safety. But to me, an active shooter threat feels much more specific and targeted. There is an actively armed person who is in all likelihood coming for a specific person or group of people. Even if you aren't the specific person they are after, if you're in the wrong place at the wrong time, they will take you out on their way to finding the person that they're after. And that feels categorically like a different kind of fear and anxiety than I experienced in the Cold War. So both of these are very different contexts that affect the psyche, again, in very general terms of one generation, differently than the next. Now, of course, I'm just giving you one example, a threat that a school-age kid might feel, and you could swap in all sorts of events that impact how we view the world and how the political, economic, and cultural contexts have shifted over the years. Whether you're thinking of formative events like 9-11 in 2001, or the Great Recession in 2008-2009, or the Bay of Pigs invasion of Cuba in the early 1960s. The point is that we all have different contexts, and taking those contexts into account may be useful. But birth years are not the only differences we have in context. For example, if you lived in an area that was impacted by the devastation of Hurricane Katrina in 2005 here in the United States, or the devastation of Hurricane Ian more recently in September of last year, again, also in the United States, and especially if you've lived through it or your home was destroyed or badly damaged, you have a very different context than someone whose experience of natural disasters has largely been via news coverage. There are lots of different ways in which our contexts are different, but most are not as sweeping as the big events that influence generations. And we don't go around categorically grouping people into hurricane survivors or tornado survivors, although we could if it would make a meaningful difference, especially in terms of how we communicate at work. 
And I mean, sometimes it just might, but that's only if those situations are very local to you and to your company. But back to the generational context. If the context of one generation makes them generally suspicious or wary or fearful, then it would be helpful to think about that and maybe apply it to your specific situation. Let's say you're a manager and you're managing a Gen Z employee. Now keep in mind, we only have less than 15% of the possible Gen Zers in the workplace who will eventually be in the workplace. Catch episode 102 of this podcast to learn more about Generation Z and how many of them are in the workplace. It's really only 13%. Um, But it's a little too soon, of course, to be making sweeping generalizations about them because so few of them are in the workforce at this point. But let's say you manage a Gen Zer and they're known to not have a lot of company loyalty. That is one of the things that we know about them so far. Will that stick when all 100% of them are in the workplace? Well, we don't know yet. But let's say, I mean, knowing that they don't have that much company loyalty, they're more apt statistically to go where the pay is better or go where the work-life balance is better or go where the workplace culture is better. So you maybe have this Gen Zer working for you, but perhaps they're incredibly loyal. So you take into account what the generalizations are about a specific generation and then give it what I call the SP test. Does that generational stereotype pass the SP test? SP stands for specific person. Affinity for avocado toast or being saddled with student debt or being jaded and cynical like the Gen Xers are supposedly may be generally true of a generation, but is it accurate? with this specific person. Get in the habit of asking yourself that and you can't go wrong. Okay, deep breath. So what sense do we make of all of this and how can you put it to use? And more specifically, how can you play a meaningful role in stopping the overuse of generational labels in the moments when it does more harm than good? Here are some ideas for you. First of all, you've got the specific person test that I just mentioned. Secondly, I'll offer up the same philosophy that I share when I discuss communication styles or personality types with my clients. Use the language of generations as a way to think about similarities and differences rather than a tool for typecasting and categorizing people and applying motives and putting them in boxes. Gen Zers don't do something because they don't care or they think they can get away with it or because they have no work ethic. That's not it at all. Nor do Gen Xers have a deep-seated cynicism as the modus operandi behind everything we do. No, we don't. The behavior that we all have as individuals is based in context, is based in our own lived experience our experiences of our lives, our individual lives, up until this very minute. So using generations to think about and have a vocabulary for similar and different contexts can be very helpful. Third, listen to yourself. Whether it's what you say inside your head to yourself in the privacy of your own mind, or what you say out loud to others. When you hear yourself using any one of the generational labels, Gen X, Baby Boomers, Millennials, Gen Z, and so forth, or even the term generation in general, check yourself. Are you reinforcing stereotypes that aren't helpful? 
or meaningful in your current situation? If so, put the brakes on and slow your roll. What else might be the motive for someone's behavior other than their generation? Fourthly, listen to others. When you hear a coworker or a friend blaming some ill on a particular generation, engage them in a meaningful conversation about whatever the phenomenon is and do your best to get them to unhook from the generational stereotype as a motive for the person's behavior. And fifth, be discriminating. Be discriminating in your consumption of media. Be discriminating in your listening to others when they're talking about generations. If you're reading an article where there's a study on generations, dive a little bit deeper into the background of the research. How many people were surveyed? Who conducted the survey or wrote up the research? Is it a reputable source? And as I mentioned before, is it a big enough sample size? Is it a sample size that can be generalized to a larger population? Ask yourself those questions as you're consuming research so that you are not inadvertently swayed by shoddy research. So with those guidelines for your consumption and understanding of the generations, go forth with open eyes as generations are concerned. Do not be too quick to use them as shortcuts for critical thinking or attempts at authentic understanding of someone's behavior. Stop. Think critically. Think before you speak and then proceed. Think of the generations as contextual stereotypes that can help us understand a generation broadly, but not a person specifically. Until next time, my friends, be well. Thanks so much for listening. If you like what you're hearing on the podcast, head on over to Stitcher, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts and give us five stars and a quick review. It really makes a difference and it keeps us bringing you valuable content that you can put into play in your life. I'm Dr. Janelle Anderson, and this is Working Conversations.